welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode number 71. No, I'm sorry, it's 72. 72. Shows you, if you don't look at your notes all the time, man, you can make some, you can make some bad mistakes. But here we are, episode number 72. And, uh, you know, I kind of sound a little bit upbeat this time, and uh, but there's some there's some things out there that are uh, definitely definitely going a little sideways. And uh, first of all, you know, our usual format of politics, gun culture, and questions and answer. I'm really going to do a little bit of the politics and then kind of go into the questions and answers because I got a lot of good ones uh, just in the last few days. So, you know. I put this podcast on several different platforms just to proliferate it, see who... And every once in a while, you get back some some really, you know, foolish comments where you see it's a troll. And uh, one person took umbrage with me because I don't recognize these protests as a movement of freedom that, that is kind of, uh, you know, taking up the land that's going to help everybody. Uh, frankly, I don't. I see it as, as anarchy. I see that there are some legitimate protests out there. And I, I have no problem with people who protest peacefully. I have a problem with people who stop roads and do that because I, I think that that's, that is going beyond their right of protest, of peaceful protest. And, and in fact, you know, when people block roads and do all this stuff to try to disrupt a bunch of other people's lives, that makes me not look at their cause in a very favorable light. But if they're off on the side and, and there are signs saying, hey, you know, this is unfair, that's unfair, I actually kind of uh, uh, look at it and say, hey, these are people who are reasonably expressing themselves and uh, go with it. But uh, unfortunately, I cannot and would never hold with any kind of this violence, looting, stealing, property destruction, anarchy, beating people, all this other stuff. All this other stuff is just just very, very bad. And, and so I don't see these riots as a movement for anything. I see them as basically decay of the social order. And it really shows, it really shows, you know, how the fabric of our society is held together by the thin blue line. You know, that's the the stitching that holds a lot of things together kind of basically make sure that the lawlessness is curbed and everything else you know the police are just getting this horrible rap this defunding the police and all i have to say is this is blowing up in the democrats face they're they're pushing all this they think all this stuff is cute and it's it's not so cute anymore uh the destruction of statues, you know, even conservatives and other people kind of turned their back or giggled a little bit when it's Confederate monuments coming down and all the rest of it. But when it's not Confederate monuments, when it's, hey, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, when those statues are getting vandalized, it's not so funny anymore. So, I mean, we've got to decide what kind of country we're going to have. I said last podcast, I think statues are done. We'll, we'll never have statues again. Statues will just gradually go away. Just gradually go away. Because they're going to hit the war memorials next. Uh, everybody said, after when they started on the Confederate statues, you know, 
oh, they're going to go after other statues next. And every and a lot of people in the media poo-pooed that. Oh, that'll never happen. This is just focused on the Civil War and all that. And we've seen it spread well beyond that. So that almost any public monument is now getting trashed. Uh, just completely getting trashed. So I hope people like it because now we have a country where we can't have statues and we can't have monuments. Pretty soon we won't have war memorials. And we're not going to have a national anthem. The, uh, the National Felon League, with their <clears throat> weird and strange thinking, is going to allow everybody to kneel during the National Anthem. And watch, the, the backlash to that will be pretty harsh and severe. So then they'll just either stop playing it or they won't have the teams out on the field or something. They'll do something, but... You know, in every in everything, our national anthem is gonna. You you better get used to seeing people kneel. You better get used to people seeing seeing people disrespect the flag, and you better get used to, you know, just all of that. the The national anthem is gone. The national anthem, the flag, statues, and next it'll be war memorials. They're all gonna be gone. They're all gonna be gone, and it's this political correctness that's. Uh, it's just going amok, but I believe there will be a huge backlash, pushback on this in November. So we'll see. You know, I in, in watching, and of course you can't watch news without watching. You know, this this these things play out. the The guy who was killed in the uh, the Wendy's altercation. Um, you know, you, you know, it's it's really it's really disturbing to see the the poor women, the poor families are up there. They're sad. They're obviously devastated. You you see that you know all of a sudden this guy wasn't the the nice guy that they portray him as. Um, there was, you know, history of a criminal history there, and you also see, um, you know, some of these things that. You know, if this guy was such a great guy, what's he doing drunk, sleeping in his car in a drive-through at Wendy's at two in the morning? You know, was that normal behavior or aberrant behavior? I don't know. But you look at that and you say, you know, at a certain point, and maybe in police culture you just can't do this, but I kind of look at it like the police need to be thinking a little smarter and not quite as reactionary. When you got this guy and you're just about ready to put him into custody, put him in cuffs and everything, the guy starts all the stuff he started, you know, and then it culminates where he grabs the, the taser, starts running away, turns around, shoots it at the police. At that point, I, I would just be tempted just to let him go. And here's why. You've got his car. You probably have his wallet in identification. You've got his name, you know where he lives, and you've got him on drunk driving, probably trespassing, being at the Wendy's, assaulting a police officer, or two police officers, resisting arrest, and you've got him for stealing the taser, which has got to be an expensive item. So you've got this guy buried in charges, and you will find him again. You know, he's not going to live as a fugitive with, without his wallet, with no money. He's not going to move his house. You've got his car. You've got everything. You know, let, let somebody roll him up, put him, put him, make him a fugitive and put all these things out. Eventually, you know, somebody will roll him up. They'll get him. And essentially, he will be involved with the criminal justice system to account for those actions. So 
police got to be a little bit smarter, but I understand. Somebody points a weapon at you, um, there is a lot of training and, and adrenaline and other things that kick in. But, um, you know, rather than facing charges yourself, let this guy be accountable for all the stuff he did. And uh, let somebody roll him up. You know, they, they would have found him within a day or two. And, and um, he, would be, he would be sitting behind bars right now trying to figure out why he's not living a better life. Okay, we are now going to go into, got a few things going on, um, go into some questions and answers. And, you know, these are, these are always uh, a lot of fun. So we have one from our friend Clown Bear. And this is, this is a very interesting question because this comes up all the time. We've talked about Glock pistols. But the question is, is the clock is the clock is the Glock the best handgun based on recommendations and torture tests? And I, I kind of abbreviated that a little bit, but um, basically everybody recommends a Glock, saying, "Hey, it's it's the most reliable, it's the most durable, and it's you know all these different organizations have adopted it, and it's passed all these torture tests. Therefore, it must be the best handgun." And I would say that there is truth to that. Although I would say it's not the late 1980s anymore that Smith and Wesson M&P has won their fair share of contracts, SIG has their fair share of contracts. So, if you're looking for a reliable, trouble-free pistol, a Glock is a good choice. So are a lot of other pistols, though. Some of the ones I just mentioned. You could put Heckler and Koch VP9 in there too. I think. Uh, and you could even go older school. You could go Beretta 92. That is a wonderful handgun. Really does a great job in um, what it's designed to do, which is, which is you know, fire the nine millimeter cartridge. Um, you know, you can go farther back. There have been a lot of really good, reliable nine millimeters. Going back to the Browning High Power, I think that was an outstanding. It's thirteen rounds is now kind of a joke because we now have 19 and 20 round pistols, but 13 rounds back in back in the past was good, and a lot of people like the feel of the Browning High Power, and it is, with ball ammunition especially, extremely durable, extremely reliable. So, there have been a lot of, lot of ones, and a lot of these, a lot of different firearms go through torture tests. You know, I think, even going back to the 1911, you know, I think they put it through a 5,000 round, you know, test and how many malfunctions do you get in 5,000 rounds and it turns out to be one or two you know some 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 deal like that um, essentially a lot of handguns are engineered to last a long time and you know you start looking at um, the durability and reliability especially of modern handguns but even older handguns you can find a handgun that's 50 years old and it uh, it's got 95 percent plus of its life left in it because it just doesn't get fired that much if it's only been fired 400 times 500 times in 50 years that's got a, it's got a lot of life left in it so uh, that's why used guns can be real bargains sometimes you're you're getting 98 or 99 percent of the life of a, of a gun for you know a, a reduced price so you know, what is best is what is best. 
Um, depends on your purpose. I, I always go back to what is the gun for? My a Glock would be terrible for maybe the most precise bullseye type shooting. It might not be the best the best thing to have. Uh, you know, it's like with with twenty two shooting. A high standard citation or a Pardini SP or a Ruger bull barrel target. Those are great target guns. Walther GSP is another one. Those are great for what's now called precision pistol shooting. Whereas a Glock, even the 22 caliber one that they brought out now, might, might not be because it's more of a service oriented gun and it's not built for that kind of accuracy. Now, on the other side of the coin, I would never carry any of those target pistols in a holster as a duty gun. You just wouldn't. So best is defined by purpose. And, you know, for police departments, they have to buy a lot of equipment. A lot of that equipment needs to be as trouble-free as possible. A lot of it needs to be, you know, kind of modular and, and all this other stuff kind of fit in with gun belts and, and all, the other, all the other stuff they have to wear now. Glock can be a really good choice. And uh, so I don't think, for my own personal use, no, a Glock is never not the best handgun. It's just I don't have a use to which the Glock would be the number one, the number one choice. But for a lot of departments and agencies, it's, it's, it's fine. Um, I don't like any, any of the uh, trigger safety guns. I mean, I just don't like them. I mean, it's, you know, it, it makes it a much, you wonder why everybody's always screaming on Facebook and screaming on, uh, whenever they see a picture of a person with their, their finger on the trigger, even if, even if another, even if a manual safety is engaged, you know, they go, oh, get that booger hook off the trigger, you know, and it's, it's become this, it's become this really dull, pedantic, thing that somebody always says and it's always that guy who says it but the fact of the matter is um that did not matter as much as it does now with these trigger safety automatics and we're starting to see a little bit you know they it was u.s military trials that did it um you're starting to see some manual safeties kind of creep in on these guns because you know you really sometimes can't have too much safety but um you know, it's a very interesting, a very interesting question of, you know, how good is the Glock? Well, it's very good. Is it right for everybody? Well, no, it's not. And now that we live in a world where there's other Glock-like pistols, um, it's really out there. I mean, you can, you can go and, and a lot of them have interchangeable frame pieces. So you can select the ones that are most comfortable for your hand and, and all the rest of it. And that's all, that's all a very good thing. I think that's all a very, very good thing. Uh, but Glock was definitely, they definitely are innovators, and they're definitely very strong in the, in the market. And so um, that's, that's basically the only insight I really have for that. They, they do pass. They do have a lot of durability, a lot of reliability. And a lot of the early, a lot of the uh, trainers, you know, if you've got a class of 30 people, they used to push Glocks because Glocks were trouble-free enough that, uh, hey, you're not going to have all these 
this whole variety of guns kind of breaking down and do you, how do you kind of fix that? Because you want people to complete the class. Well, if you've got a guy who's a Glock armorer and, you know, really almost all the pistols in there are Glocks, you know, that becomes a very, that you can put a guy back into action pretty quick if something does go wrong. But the, I always love the juxtaposition of these guys. Glock is the best handgun. It's the most durable, most reliable. And I'm a certified Glock armorer. And I just sit there and go, well, if it's as good as you say it is, you wouldn't need <laughs> you wouldn't need a certified Glock armor because it would never break. But uh, but be that as it may, um, you know, there's certain things people like and don't like, and uh, I'm I'm just not a fan of the. Uh, I don't really care for polymer framed pistols, and I certainly don't care for uh, the trigger safety pistols. That's not saying though that someday I won't I won't have one. We'll see. We'll see. I was. I was very much tempted by the Ruger American 45 Compact. I mean, I saw one of those, and, and you know, I was really close, but then I, I, I don't need it. But I, I was very, very tempted by it because I'm like, it's a gun that I really could, you know, secrete places and and uh, carry very clandestinely, and it's it's you know looks like to be it's powerful enough and has enough capacity to be you know, a good defensive firearm. So that's my, that's my insight. Okay, next question. And this is, this is an interesting question. What is the most, I kind of like these, this is one of those kind of um, negative questions. What's the most useless feature on a combat rifle? And, and uh, I always like that because it always gets me thinking, because you usually think, hey, what do I really like about this? Well, I like this, I like that, I like the other thing. I really like, you know, that. But you, a lot of times you think, well, there's things I don't like, but what is on there which is absolutely useless? Just useless. So I have to say that in looking, I looked around and unanimously the the thing that just jumped up and, and is obviously in first place by a long long shot and you don't see these anymore but it's rifles with with uh, folding bayonets i mean think of sks rashid even some ak's chinese ak's have them uh you, you can go, even go back to the carcano it's it the carcano has a folding bayonet the M38 anyway, but it's detachable, so it's a little bit less of a, a deal because you can actually take it off and you know put it somewhere and, and not have to deal with it. But folding bayonets have got oh, and the worst, the worst folding bayonet design is the VZ52 rifle or the VZ5257 rifle. That side folding bayonet, which never quite fits right it's supposed to just when they're brand new i guess they click right into the stock but boy when they get a little bit older or the, <laughs> the bayonet is slightly bent a little bit man it becomes a place where you can you can definitely lay your hand open if you're not careful so for that reason i think folding bayonets are the worst of all the folding bayonets the only rifle that's that I really don't mind it on is the Rashid, the, the Egyptian Rashid. You know, not a very common rifle, but it kind of folds up out of the way, and it's 
it's it's at least you still see it and it's there but at least it's kind of out of the way um but the other ones yeah i just i just don't care for it it's it's goofy um if, especially the uh what are the other offenders that have that oh the moisen m44 has one um yeah in fact in fact i dislike them so much i would prefer a rod bayonet which is a crummy idea because it's a crummy bayonet um i would prefer a rod bayonet that at least kind of goes back out of the way and kind of looks like a cleaning rod or something i would prefer that to a uh uh, a folding bayonet. Yeah, the folding bayonet's a big loser. Complicates the design, adds weight, and you know it precludes you from doing kind of the modern thing, which is bayonets have kind of evolved into being, well, it's a bayonet, but it's also kind of a combat knife, too. They're not very good at it. They're not very good combat knives, but they're better than nothing. And uh, even, the, even the goofy ones, well, it's also a wire cutter, I've never actually tried to cut wire with one of those. I, I think I'll have to experiment. I've got a, I've got one or two laying around that I can uh, go out there. I, I have a funny feeling that cutting wire with one of those is probably more difficult than it looks. So I'll uh, do that. But, you know, that really caught on. I've got a uh, Dutch-made stoner bayonet. Um... It was supposed to go on the Stoner, and it was supposed to go on the M16 series. And it uh, it actually was just like the Warsaw Pact. has that same design where it can cut wire. Yeah, just as an aside, these were, um, these were Dutch-made bayonets. And you could buy them back in like the 70s and 80s. You could buy them out of like advertisements and gun magazines. Like in the, and uh, military interest magazines like Soldier of Fortune and all that. And they were like 10 or 12 bucks. And you couldn't get an M7 at that time. So for my uh, AR-15 SP-1, which I bought in college, I, um, I bought one of those bayonets. I wanted a bayonet, and I couldn't... They, you, there were no surplus M7 bayonets, so I, I bought one of these. Actually, I bought two of them. And uh, one of I since sold for like 300 bucks, which was a pretty good return on investment for... Uh, um, a 100 no a what is it a 10 or 12 dollar I, th I think they were probably 20 bucks with shipping you know like maybe 15 bucks and then five dollars shipping or whatever shipping and handling so it was like for a 20 dollar investment i sold it for 300 bucks kind of a, because it's this cool cold war type of deal there was a program where because the first time they tried to standardize nato they abjectly failed they were trying to come out with this um I think it was uh, Soldier of, you know, Project 70 or something, where by in 1970 they would have this complete thing, same helmet, same uniform, same web gear, same rifle, same bayonet. We'd even have the same tank, you know, the MBT-70, which ours became the Abrams. The, uh, the, the Germans kind of broke away and developed the, uh, the Leopard, Leopard 2, I guess. So we were all trying, everybody was trying to sit, everybody, everybody knew that we could save a lot of overhead and a lot of, a lot of problems if we could just standardize on something. Same way the Warsaw Pact had. Now, they were totally Soviet dominated and, and in a lot of cases were told what to do and outside of a few uh, people, the Romanians here and the Czechs there and, you know, Yugoslavia who had kind of broken away, they, most countries kind of towed the line and, and just 
made Soviet stuff. But, um, you know, NATO has always had these, these divergent countries saying with divergent interests and Therefore, we had a lot of divergent equipment. <laughs> and the NATO standard caliber being 7.62 NATO, but unfortunately the United States had the 5.56 in the M16A1. So it's, it goes on and on. But this was a, this was a uh, kind of a forward-thinking project to, to standardize everything. And of course, nothing decent ever happened. NATO standardization would make a great, great question one day. So that's that. Uh, let's see. What is the best Cold War rifle? Hmm. Hmm. That is a good question because best is always meaning best can always have a lot of different meanings. Which one is the best? Just kind of the, I'll say, I don't want to say best one to shoot, but I will say which one is has the most desirable features. I think I'll approach it from that. So when you when you look at that, you immediately toss out the battle rifles because they're way too heavy, and they're they're really uh, and they're powerful. They're not shooting intermediate cartridges. So the M14, the FAL, the G3, all kind of BM59, all those all those goodies. You know they they all kind of they all kind of step step to the back. And so we're left with the AK series. The AR series, the, um, what else are we left? Oh, you know what? We're left with probably the best shooting of those rifles. And it's only got one major deficiency, is the VZ-58, the Czech VZ-58. It only has one major deficiency that I found. Uh, the AK, okay, here's, here are the deficiencies for some of the others. The AK, the AK does not have a bolt hold open device. So, the la I I cannot, and maybe it's just because I'm not very smart, but I cannot put a 30 round magazine in a weapon and go through a tactical course or much less uh, combat and count how many rounds I'm using. Okay, um, so you have to resort to some old tricks like maybe putting tracers as the first four rounds in it so when you start seeing green um out of your ak you know that hey you're down to the last two or three rounds and and therefore it's a good time to make a magazine change you could do that i don't think they did that in the warsaw pact i think they just were because there were squads were all bunched up they just figured well if you run out the guys to your left and right will still have ammo so who really cares why complicate the design putting in a bolt hold open so you know, the AK does not have a bolt hold open, and the, and the bolt hold open mags you get are a joke, because the minute you pull it out, the bolt slams forward, you put the new magazine in, you got to cycle the bolt again. You know, that's, that's just a lot of time that you might not have. So I don't like, so I'll say the AK has got to step to the rear. The M16 series up to the M16A1, because I have a related question, I'll talk about the M16A2. Um, the M16A1, generally very excellent, generally very excellent as far as all of its handling and, uh, everything. I think it's, I think it's, it's at least tied for first place. And the only other contender 
is the uh, VZ58. And the VZ58 only has one problem, and that is if you, if you try to change the magazine, if you're wearing any kind of glove, it's impossible if you because of that little latch is kind of they kind of had to bend half the trigger guard in so that you could get your finger in there and hit the latch. Well, if you're wearing a glove or something, even a light glove, that that can be a little that can be harder to do. But it does have a genuine bolt hold open. It's um, basically a more streamlined design than the AK. It uses a short stroke piston. Has a simpler block, um, uh, bolt lockup type of deal. Um, very, very good. Very, very good system. And it's very lightweight. Small. It's, it's thinner. It's, it's a very, very good system. And so I would say that that and the M16A1 are the two. They're the two best. But you got to give the nod to the M16A1 because ergonomically, you know, it's why people love ARs today. You know, it's the same system. You can take that lower receiver from the uh, M16A1 and put any kind of upper on it today, and it it works great. And of course, I'll uh, I'll go I'll go there. What is the I, I just uh, I'll just add this question in as a uh, as an appendage. What is the worst rifle of the Cold War? And I have to say, without question, unequivocally, the VZ52 is the worst. Uh, clunky, heavy. It's got that wonderful side folding bayonet that'll that'll shred your fingers. Um, a very complicated and kind of tricky gas system. Uh, proprietary cartridge, and yeah, and limited magazines, ten round magazines. Why they didn't do a thirty, I do not know. That would have been so much smarter. But a ten round magazine. So that is what that is what the worst one is. So the checks go; they go from the worst to tied for the best, or or right up there with the best, which is which is indicative. Czech weapons are usually very very good, and uh, you know, but the, sometimes they look different. You know, they're they're um, sometimes their designs are really different. Every once in a while, they come out with a dog, but. They usually rebound with something very, very excellent. They learn, they actually learn from their mistakes as far as weapon designing goes. Okay, here is a question that will get people to think and cause controversy and all that other kind of good stuff. Is the M16A2 an A4 really an assault rifle? The M16A2, and then the M16A4 is the the 20-inch barrel that's got, you know, it's it's more modernized. It's got the detachable handle and and rails, so you can mount all the all the stuff, and probably a free-floated barrel too. I think the A, that the A2 does not have. Are those really assault rifles? And you know what? I have to say no. I have to say, you know what those are? Those are hybrids. Those are battle rifles that shoot intermediate cartridges. That's exactly what that is. Um, and, you know, go go put an M16A2 next to an AKM, and you'll say, well, if we know the AKM is really thought of as the gold standard and the, the definition of an assault rifle, well, then this M16A2 is much different. Put an M16A2 next to an M14, and you can see that they're a lot more similar 
in some ways than they are separate, um, than they are different. And looking at the rear sights, the adjustability and the functionality of the M16A2 and M14 rear sights, uh, looking at the overall length and the, the, the weight and kind of the, putting the longer buttstock on the uh, uh, A2, it is a it is more battle rifle than assault rifle. The only thing assault rifle about it is it shoots an intermediate cartridge, the 556. Now, if we actually went and did something clever, like put on the 20-inch barrel in 6mm ARC, is it really an assault rifle? Is that really an intermediate cartridge? And the answer is, I don't really know. I think performance-wise, it's perhaps more of a battle rifle cartridge than, a, than an intermediate cartridge. Um, very interesting. We might have to start redefining things. Um, maybe battle rifle and assault rifle don't fit military rifles anymore. Maybe there are these things in the middle that are um, that are coming up, and maybe it's in different calibers. Maybe, you know, and, and other branches of the U.S. government have used different caliber ARs. I do believe, I'd have to look this up, but I think the Coast Guard was using uh, 50... Beowulf ARs because they have certain certain things that they're doing when they're busting drug boats and and they need a a weapon they can put a big you know you put a big hole in a boat I guess it makes a difference if you put a 50 caliber hole in a boat as opposed to a 22 caliber hole in a boat if your if your object is to hole put holes in the boat so that it sinks or or uh, stops functioning or something so I think that there's uh, uh, definitely some, you know, times, you know, if you have an AR-10, what is an AR-10? Is it an assault rifle or is it a battle rifle? I think most people would say it's a battle rifle, even if it's in 6.5 Creedmoor or maybe something, something else, like 6mm Creedmoor or something like that. So we're going, we're, it looks like we're kind of moving into the center. What would 6.8 SPC be? I still think you're in the intermediate cartridge realm there. That's not really pumping up to even a, a kind of lower level battle rifle cartridge. But some of these things, some of these things might. So I would say the A2 is definitely a hybrid. It's in many ways dimensions and with the kind of sighting system it has and everything else it is it is more battle rifle than assault rifle that's that's for sure the only thing assault rifle about it as i said before is the cartridge okay and here's another related question and i like i like it when questions relate is the m16a2 superior to the m16a1 and as a guy who used both um and if you can, if you can imagine, if you can kind of wipe memory clean, the M16A1 had a lot of bad raps. All of them, essentially undeserved. I mean, the thing, the bad things people told me about AR-15s and M16A1s turned out not to be true. Well, they weren't accurate. Well, they are accurate, but they are designed for a different purpose than an M14. So. 
um, it's 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 a, a different kind of a different tool, a different instrument for a different different purpose, looking for a different result. But they are very accurate. Uh, they're not reliable. Well, they're they're awesomely reliable. Uh, you you know all all those myths that they said about it. If you throw all those out and don't let them color your thinking, the M16A1 is lighter. It has fully automatic capability instead of the three-shot burst. It has simple sights that, that cannot actually get knocked off. I mean, you, you need a tool to or a bullet uh, um, tip or, or a nail or whatever. What are, All these things have been used at one time or another to adjust the sights. So once you get it sighted in, it, it is good to go. Um, what you cannot do efficiently is make a rear sight windage adjustment on it on the fly because there's no there's no knob like on the A2E you just grab and and twist and, and the thing moves so I would say with all those things and the buttstock was a little bit shorter so you can you know if you're if you're in winter clothing it's more comfortable to shoot if you're in some kind of body armor it's a little better to shoot uh, I, I always have thought that the A1 is actually in many ways when it comes to on the ground grunt combat where you're firing and, and face it 100 yards is a long shot you really want the a1 and not the a2 now if you're camp perry and you're trying to be in the president's hundred then yeah the a2 is the, is the rifle you want but the a1 if, if you're in there fighting fighting for you know God country your buddies and and to rid the uh, the earth of the forces of evil the a1 is a very very formidable tool and really uh, the a1 you know the the carry handle is the only thing that really takes it out of the modern category if you had an a1 with a detachable handle and you could put any optic and all that on it that would be a much more popular rifle and in fact that's what this what would stoner do thing that in range tv is doing and i got a question about that later on so not to not to take that thunder but you know when you're really looking at it the a1 is quite a formidable and excellent weapon and it's just been that's the most underrated military rifle that's ever been but that perception is changing a little bit as the the m14 gravel belly you know, M1 Garand, all as those guys are are, are just you know fading away. Um, a lot of the people kind of look, and that's what the retro movement is all about, which I'm a part of. Even though I bought my retro rifle when when it was new and it wasn't retro, but uh, people appreciate the qualities of the A1. It's light, it's simple, it's uncomplicated as far as uh, having a lot of extra goodies or gizmos on it and uh, they're they're very they're pleasurable to shoot and i think that they uh, are very effective weapons and the nice the nice part about it is to me they were always very versatile because you did have the in the top of the carry handle you do have that hole and you can mount you know whatever kind of little optic you need now granted you got to kind of scoot up a little bit to see it but it's not a not a bad system at all not a bad system Okay, what do you think of European military rifles, modern military rifles, such as the G36, the L85A2, the FAMAS, 
and whatever else you want to throw in there. The SIGs or SIG 556s are in there. The HK 416 is in there. Uh, essentially, anything that's non AR based, they've wasted their time and money dealing with. Not saying that they're bad. You know, the FOMAS has got some cool features. You know, kind of that little bipod is kind of cool, and a few other things on it are cool. But basically, the juice is not worth the squeeze. And most of these came out when countries were still pretty nationalistic about the kind of weapons that they would adopt and kind of protecting their own arms industries. So, uh, frankly, I'm just not that impressed with them. I mean, you see the G36 has got, it's got, it's got the pencil barrel. It's always had. Now the pencil barrel is pretty cool. If you're wandering around your, your little, they call them concerns in Germany. That means a little base, you know, and a lot of times they're in the middle of cities. You know, you're wandering around your little base in, in the middle of Munich or, or uh, Stuttgart or something. Yeah, it's, it's fine to have the pencil barrel deal. Uh, if you're down basically in peace enforcement in Bosnia where you're not really shooting, but, you know, you're going out with guns and letting everybody know you're serious, and if they break the peace, they're going to have to deal with you. Yeah, that, that G36 is fine. You get into combat and in, in, uh, you go to northern Afghanistan, which is kind of the quiet sector. It's not a big deal, but they find out when they get into kind of combat with those things that maybe their rifles have some deficiencies. What I'm saying is a lot of these rifles have been fielded and they don't have any good field user feedback from conflicts to say, no, this is not what we want. This this has got some some characteristics that need to change. They, they probably have a little bit of that, but they don't have nearly enough. And my whole deal is this has already been done with the AR series. I mean, right now, I mean, unless... Unless somebody just likes AKs, <laughs> I mean, unless you just like them or you inherited a bunch of them and you're going to continue to use them. But if you're in the market for military rifles, you're going to get some sort of M4 type variant. I mean, that's just what you're going to get. Unless somebody makes you some, you know, killer deal uh, where you can get these things dirt, get something else dirt cheap. Just the way it is. Um, you don't see anybody trying to buy Chinese rifles, you don't see anybody trying to buy North Korean rifles, you know, basically, even the H&K 416, I would say that that's just an AR variant, the piston-driven AR, so, yeah, I think everybody is, uh, you know, you've done that, you've, you've effectively, from an organizational standpoint, you've basically wasted your time developing something that performs maybe not even as well as something that already exists. Now, that being said, I, I like a lot of those rifles, they're very cool. And uh, probably a lot of fun, but you know, from if you're looking at it from a procurement, organizational, military type of decision making, uh, there's really only one decision out there. And that's the AR system. Okay, here is another question: Will the Brownells in-range TV? What would Stoner do? AR have any military or police? user applications well i would i would first of all say no i think they're developing that for strictly the gamer cool guy market where so guys can run around at these matches and they're they gotta hit the lightest weight rifle possible so they can put on all their body armor and their helmets and and all the other junk that they carry around i always think that's so funny 
I, I guess it's in some some way, shape, or form to try to replicate combat where they you got to carry a medic kit, you got to carry this, you got to carry all your ammunition on you for the entire map. So in other words, they they make it heavier, and in order to compensate for that, they want lighter weight weapons. So uh, I don't know. I just kind of think about that and wonder. But um, does it have any military or police applications? I would say that it would it would only be extremely limited. You you really have to think hard of where what kind of situation you would be a predictable situation you would be in, where saving even two pounds off a rifle would make the difference between success and failure. And that's really the kind of criterion you have to look at. It's my mission will fail unless I have this piece of equipment, or my mission has a greater chance of success with this piece of equipment as opposed to just a standard rifle that does the same thing and i say the debits i saw that i did see the update they they put on and i would say the debits on all this are it's it's essentially unproven you don't know if it's going to work the durability and reliability over the long term are, are somewhat questionable. And I would say that durability and reliability, the durability will suffer. The lighter you go, the less durable something is. That's one of the reasons the M1 Garand was such a great rifle was. It was, they call it robust, meaning big, over-engineered, heavy, but man, you can really, you know, you can be in some very, very, dire situations and that rifle can get knocked around and it's still going to work you know you can be climbing up point du hoc and it's banging against rocks and cliffs and everything else and that's that is still going to work you can parachute it in somewhere land on it essentially take it out of the case and it's it's going to still work um, so you talk about durability and how does durability affect reliability well stronger and and more durable something is, the more reliable it is. When things start bending and breaking or tweaking, that's when you're going to see some of this other stuff go away. Um, that's when you see the reliability just kind of start to plummet. So I would say that it's a, um, you know, it, it has very little application for any of that. Um, you know, and, and again, to go back to the earlier question about how good the A1 was, they're really going back to using the A1 as a almost a departure point in a lot of areas, going back saying, well, we want the pencil-thin barrel because it saves a lot of weight. Well, it did on the A1, too. And uh, they want all these things that save weight. They're kind of going back in a rifle that is, I'll say Colt SP1, because we the fully automatic feature is not in play here. But they're going back to that lightweight, simple design where I think it where I think it fails is they're they're trying to slap optics on it it has no backup metallic sights and you know it just simply won't take the abuse I'll tell you <laughs> an abuse story an awesome abuse story is I was um, training at the uh, National Training Center and I was one of the observer controllers it's one of the people who run the exercise and there was a National Guard brigade that was out there, and they were they were fighting the op four, you know, the opposing force, you know, big war game. Thing is a great big war game, you know, and um, 
you know, it's pretty good. We've, we've trained a lot, trained thousands and thousands and thousands of people there who've done very, very well in, in both the Mideast wars, Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom. It's the army, kind of the army part or equivalent of what 29 Palms does for the Marines. The Marines go there, they run around the desert, and they play big war games. Well, the Army's done it, and I think the, the uh, National Training Center at Fort Irwin probably has a lot more money, so it's it's a pretty elaborate setup where everything is, you know, they've used laser engagement, you know, to simulate actual weapons. Really, really cool thing. And it's been open for, I bet it's it's been 40 years now. Yeah, 40 years. It started in the early 80s. Other units would go out there and train on the terrain in the 70s and 60s and back to even World War II, but it really became a an institution in the uh, early 1980s. But anyway, I was out there, and I see this five-ton National Guard truck. It's heading towards me, and it's on. we're on one of these tank trails, and, and some of the tank trails are actual paved roads, you know, so... So it's it's on this paved road and it's it's going at a pretty good clip, you know, that and that that happens. So it's coming towards me and as it's coming toward me, I see something and I do, I don't know what it is until I get closer, but if you know about military trucks, they have tow hooks that are just above the bumper so that they get stuck somewhere you can kind of throw a um, a cable around it and pull pull the truck out with something else. So it's got these big hooks on it. Well, on these hooks, the driver had evidently, he put his M16A2 and kind of uh, had, it, had it hanging from the hooks by the sling, which meant that it was lying across the front of his, his bumper. So, as he's coming down the road, I see what I see that I don't really understand until I get close is, it's his rifle, and it's just banging on that bumper. Every time that thing hits any kind of a irregularity in the road, that rifle is just pounding against that steel bumper, you know, just flat, pounding against it. So I, I was concerned about that, but I was also concerned that, hey, if that sling, you know, because those, those little nylon slings, hey, you don't know, you know, could work its way loose or whatever. That sling, one of those points on the sling goes, that, that rifle can just go, it's either going to hit the ground and be lost, or, or it's going to get rolled over by a five-ton truck, which isn't going to do it a lot of good either. There's not a lot of durability that you can build into a rifle that will withstand that. So, by the time I disengage from the element I'm with, turn around, get heading the other direction and chase this guy down, gone miles and miles and miles. And I don't know how many, because it's a very, very big place. I don't know how many miles he had been driving before. So I get him, I stop him, flag him down. And he asked me what the problem is. I quickly tell him, and we go look at the rifle. We go inspect it. Because I, my deal was I expected the rifle, the part that was banging against the bumper, to, to probably be mauled pretty, pretty heavily. Well, as it turns out, as it turns out, that rifle was completely functional. We, we did a function check and everything right there. That weapon was completely serviceable. <laughs> it did need to be cleaned. It did need to be cleaned. And because uh, that fine dust had got, gotten in everywhere. But it, it was fully functional. Now, the finish on the side that was hitting the bumper was, yeah, that was that was messed up a little bit. It did not look like a brand new rifle. But it was still usable. And I mean, literally, you could have you could have uh, put a magazine of live rounds in it and fired it and it would have functioned. I mean, it uh, um, there was just no question about that. So I, I 
you know, kind of looked at that and said, hey, that is, that is excellent durability because that was a punishing thing. You think about something slapping against steel maybe several hundred times, maybe, maybe even a thousand times. I don't know. Um, and no, no pins came loose, nothing, you know, just the, the thing was still there. That is the kind of durability you're looking for. Now, would a what would Stoner do rifle in that same situation look like? I, I think it would look quite different. I don't think that the optics would survive. I don't think that uh, the innards might have some might have some issues. Um, the polymer receiver buttstock might have issues. Certainly, the handguard because it's a free float handguard would potentially have issues. So this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, unless you've lived the grunt life and have been, have been a grunt, these are the kind of things that you just don't really know about. And these are the kind of, of this is the kind of stuff that a military rifle will go through. And that's just one day, one exercise. You know, in the life cycle of that rifle, it could have no more days like that or could have 50 more days like that. And when you start looking at uh, mechanized units, Strikers, Bradleys, in my day it was M113s, uh, when you're climbing in and out fast, doing a combat dismount, hey, things get banged around, especially when you're hauling out anti-tank missiles, machine guns, all this other stuff, or climbing in and out of hatches, stuff gets banged against hard metal. And the, the what would Stoner do rifle is is literally not going to survive that. It, it would last not very long in those kind of conditions. But the A1s and A2s, they lasted. And when I was uh, in combat in Iraq, the M4 is just as durable as those other two rifles. M4 is a, is a great rifle. You know, even though it does not have the fully automatic capability, and a lot of people, everybody craps on the three-shot deal, I can tell you right now, that three-shot deal, if, if you've practiced with it, and I was in a unit that did a lot of marksmanship training and practice, and, you know, special operations guys kind of do that, um, I really like that three-shot deal because it really was a, I found that with a little bit of practice, it was, it was very easy to put three shots in a man-sized target, even if it was a moving vehicle firing at a stationary target. I mean, it was something you could do. You could hit that target at least once, and, and in most cases, multiple times, which is nice, because if you're trying to do that, that means you're just trying to eliminate the enemy and get out of the area for whatever reason. So the, um, and I also like the uh, ammunition conservation thing of the three-shot, the three-shot burst, because that means you got ten trigger pulls for a 30-round magazine. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, if it's fully automatic, a lot of times you can, you could do a whole mag dump, and then oh, then you're fishing around looking for uh, another magazine full of full of bullets to get back into the war. So, uh, the essentially getting back to the point though, the what would Stoner do rifle would not survive, in my experience, in a military setting. And while I think the police are probably less strenuous. Uh, I would think that there are times when things get banged around, like when you're running up and down a stairwell, or there's some other kind of deal, or they're grappling with somebody, or there's some other kind of there's some other situation where these things get 
get banged around, and I don't think that that, that rifle would withstand it. Um, not so much that it would even, uh, I don't even think anybody would even consider consider using it. Uh, there's just certain things that uh, metal can withstand that plastic, or polymer, the fancy word for plastic, polymer, uh, there's certain things that they cannot withstand. And uh, um, they found in World War II, another aside, but they found in World War II that uh, soldiers were very reluctant to get rid of equipment that they saw as reliable for new equipment that was unproven. And so there was always this natural bias of, I know this, I know my Thompson works, I don't want to trade it for this new M3 grease gun thing because I don't know that it works. I know this works in my hands. And so, uh, the same thing it was with tanks, it was the same thing, Any anything, um, all weapons, it was the same thing. Um, when they tried to introduce something new, it's like, I know the old one works and I want to keep it. Um, so, having equipment that works is sometimes an understatement understated value of military equipment. If it works, it is very valuable. I, I said the same thing about the, um, and again, I'm just completely diverging here, but when they did that Project Lightning, you know, that, that CNR Arsenal deal, and they basically, because in-range TV was involved, they, they crapped all over the BAR, but the fact of the matter is, they even admitted that the BAR was the only weapon that showed up there that was functioning, and it left there functioning without any gunsmithing. And I'll tell you this right now, that puts it in the numero uno position. You can, you can argue about all the rest of the nonsense all you want, but a weapon that works is better than a weapon that doesn't work, or that only partially works, or that unreliably works. So... The lighter you make something, the worse it gets as far as durability and reliability. And therefore, I don't think that uh, you'd ever see any anyone uh, using the what would Stoner do uh, rifle or carbine or whatever it is for anything other than gaming, which is what it's intended for. And as it's intended for that, then it's it's fine. You you need to save you need to save a couple pounds. So you can <laughs> so you can wear the the helmet that you don't need. Fine, go for it. Well, that's it for another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And as always, please send us questions. You can leave them in the comments. Uh, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol .com. or you can yeah, those are about the best two ways. Leave them in the comments or email them to me. Um, that's about the best ways to do that. And uh, I will be sure to look at them, think about them, and try to answer them for you. So, this brings to a conclusion episode number 71. And this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>